been that way for about 400 years. Um, and then in Samuel's lifetime, this completely changes. The whole form of government switches to a monarchy. And, uh, and he led the country through this transition. So he, he kind of has a really key um, uh, uh, kind of life in that he's the instant that this really huge change in the story happens. And my favorite part of the story is that God prepared Samuel for this transition as he was a child. Very, very young. And he called Samuel um, and gave Samuel some time to grow used to hearing God's voice because he was definitely going to need that in the role that he was about to serve. So God calls Samuel while he's still a child um, to, to help uh, Samuel prepare to lead Israel through this stormy season. So even though we, were able, we weren't able last week to kind of unpack Samuel's life like we normally would have because the kids were up here with us, we had a fifth, um, fifth Sunday family service last week where our kids came up with us and we had some fun um, with them. I definitely um, want to offer Samuel to you as kind of the honorary patron saint of transition um, because he, uh, he definitely served that role. And if you, if you want to go home and read his story, which I highly recommend, um, I suggest you focus on 1 Samuel 8 and 9. This really kind of shows Samuel's heart. This is the key point at which things started to pivot. Um, and this is the moment where Samuel negotiates the real transition of choosing the first king and the nation asking for a king and him kind of standing in the middle between these two forms of government. Um, and I ask you to pay special attention to the way that he laments what's lost in the, in the previous form of government. Um, even as he helps negotiate what's coming. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's kind of a powerful thing, the way he... Um, we, I think we have a tendency to... He has a beautiful balance. So we have a tendency to either be one or two kings. We're the ones in, in the old going, change is bad, don't change, don't do it. You know, uh, we're in the lament group, or we're in the change everything you can possibly change just for the sake of changing it, you know, uh, group. And... Samuel holds this amazing tension of truly from his gut lamenting what was about to be lost. And, and when you read Samuel, 1 Samuel 8 9, he's not happy about it. He's very unhappy about what's changing. But he also recognizes he cannot stop the change. And, and he jumps on board with God to help lead the changes. And so he gets to be the one because he's willing to. So he doesn't just, you know, let's change just for the sake of change. Over what, over the change, and, and he truly lamented what's being lost, while he also gets on board so that he can help affect and navigate the change. It's, it's a neat balance. So I recommend. I wish we had time to unpack it. We don't. I do recommend going home and reading First Samuel eight and nine, um, and look at the way Samuel uh, navigated that, because we sit in a really transitional time in our world right now, and a lot of us know how to lament what's being lost. I can do it all day long, and I do do it all day long a lot of times. Um, at the same time, we have to be willing to step up and lead some of these changes. Otherwise, they happen without us, and uh, we're left behind. Um, so, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's especially if you can put yourself in Samuel's shoes in those chapters. It is a powerful read, uh, and I recommend it. So we're moving on to another young saint, um, though maybe not as young as Samuel was when we read about him last week. Um, uh, this saint was also young, and he was from Africa. Daniel um, Kelo was his name. And, uh, and he was uh, uh, almost always, um, or he is almost always depicted along with his acolyte, uh, Gildo Irwa, um, in, in the early 20th century, in a very tumultuous time. He was born in Uganda in the earliest 20th century. Um, and to understand kind of the storm that he was born into, we have to back up just a tiny bit. From the beginning of the kind of colonial missionary period, where nations um, were sitting out missionaries everywhere, and not just missionaries, but also colonizers, you know, where there was kind of that weird mix of setting up a colony, but also um, spreading the gospel. And so it got a little messy at times because. You had people who were there to gain resources and, and, and wealth, and you also had people who truly loved Jesus were trying to spread the gospel. And, and it, was a, it was a kind of a messy season, because sometimes we swung too 
point one way or the other. Well, Uganda was one of those areas that was very keen to hear the gospel. So the gospel had really good traction through the Korean Missionary Church in Uganda.
little money they have, the British government is trying to siphon out. Um, and so there's a lot of suffering. And by the early 20th century, Uganda was a time bomb. Everybody knew was eventually going to go off. And in the drama, born a young man in Uganda. And, uh, and his parents were pagans. His parents were part of the old religion. Um, and, uh, but then he was quickly won over by the local Catholic mission. Um, he was enamored with the story of the gospel, that somebody would love him enough uh, to die for him. Uh, he was completely caught up in the story. Um, and mostly, uh, he fell in love with the idea of a prince of peace, a peace bringer. And so, um, he was baptized the first moment uh, the priest would allow him to be. And uh, so I guess he understood how to articulate it. Um, he said that all this came to the region. I doubt he knew all the political going on as a child, but he knew things weren't right. He knew things were tense and violent. And uh, so he was drawn to the peaceful nature of, um, of the gospel. And he felt at a very young age that what the world needed was grace. And he, and he communicated it all the time to those around him. What we really need is grace and peace um, to fix things. And so shortly after being baptized, uh, Dowdy um, uh, applied to be an acolyte, which was kind of a helper of the priest or of the catechist. And, and, uh, and at a, kind of a remarkably young age, um, he signed up to be um, an acolyte. Uh, and, and he was placed under a catechist. And the catechist was the one who, when people wanted to convert Christianity, they kind of taught him what it meant to convert. They also taught children the faith and, and things like that. So he's kind of a children's pastor's helper is, is what he is. He started to join the church. Um, he started to serve Brother Antonio as Athlon, the Catholic Catechist. And, uh, and he didn't hold this position for long because shortly after becoming an Athlon, Brother Antonio died. And there was no Catechist in the region. Uh, and so at like 14 years old, Daddy uh, applies to be the new Catechist. He's not even been saying that long, but he wants to teach and help convert other people.
all the historical bitterness. He ignored all the theological differences. Of the 16, 17, 18 year old kid, however he was, chose not to get involved in any of the power games um, or the whole idea of winning or, or losing anything. And instead, he just focused on children. He focused on kids. Uh, and in his final moment, he willingly sacrificed himself um, rather than allow a battle that might hurt the kids or might even um, hurt any of the work so he gave himself rather than risk um, damaging the children. And I can, uh, I can imagine it's a secret to anyone um, who goes here why I love this story and why this story is always important to um, I speak often about how much, um, uh, how important to us our kids are here. Um, I'm making no secret that I feel like the best impact we can have on the world is as a church or as individuals is through our kids investing in our kids and letting them grow up and feel connected to God and His body. Um, I, I say all the time, most of us are too old to change the world. And our days are gone. Our best chance to change the world is raise world changers and send them out into the world to make a difference. Um, if, if you're fairly new here, you, you may not know this, but the Table actually supports an inner-city ministry um, that we absolutely love called Urban Christian Academy. Um, it's a Christian elementary and middle school, um, and they're desiring to add a high school, um, as well as in one of the roughest parts of Kansas City. It's on the east side. These neighborhoods are so bad, and I know that most of the public schools have been shut down. They bus kids out to other schools, or some of them don't even go to school, because there are no schools in the area anymore. Um, and, uh, in the midst of that neighborhood, uh, they planted uh, this little Christian school uh, that uh, they ran an old daycare and uh, started a Christ-centered school. So they became two four, um, so they took in a class of kindergartners and they loved them and taught them and they had focused on education but also Christ-centered education. They called them their scholars, their first group of scholars, and, and so they uh, they raised them into a group. And then the next year they added a new kindergarten when that first group became fourth graders, the idea of these kids who have been raised in this encouraging, powerful, Christ-centered, protected, you know, environment, throwing them into the public schools felt cruel. And so they scrambled and found a way at had fifth and sixth grade. Um, now they're scrambling again. They have seventh and eighth grade. They're hoping to be able to, to educate these kids all the way to, to college. Um, but, uh, but my favorite part of the story is UCA's founder, uh, Kaylee George. She grew up in, in my house, and she was super shy, but really passionate Christ follower. Um, when I say she grew up in my house, she hung out at our house. She was one of my children's church volunteers, and so they were at our house all the time. And like, she didn't actually live at my house, but, but was there all the time. Um, and, uh, and she had this like, really good, like amazing missionary heart, but also... Like, feels really connected to her family, so the idea of going overseas somewhere, you know, didn't feel right, but she really wanted to make a difference in the world. And so, immediately after college, this 100% Johnson County white girl, I mean, just like white girl, um, moved into the inner city. She immediately bought a junky little um, inner city house and got a job at an inner city uh, homeless mission. And Jim lived and worked there for quite a long time um, uh, while building conditions and studying the problems and what solutions were offered and managing ways to make a difference. After almost 10 years, um, Kaylee grabbed a handful of her closest friends and supporters and said, it's got to be the kids. Um, she, she, uh, she said that while living in the culture, trying to, she had tried to imagine starting a mission um, that, that focused on families. She tried to imagine starting a church. Um, and had some of us really on board for that. She even tried to imagine just taking over a neighborhood, moving in other missionally-minded people and just trying to, to move into a neighborhood just so they could just kind of minister straight out of the neighborhood um, and just kind of spread the gospel and give aid from this kind of neighborhood. But the more time she spent there, the more she became convinced that there was simply no way um, to overturn the impact of generational poverty on such a closed culture unless you start with kids. 
Now, as you get kids young, teach them, train them, equip them with both a, a great education and the gospel, and then as they grow, commission them to be missionaries in that culture. Um, and so she, she started a, a, a tool. And as she laid out her vision, I was immediately hooked to it with my heart for reaching kids in church, only expanded to neighborhoods and hopefully to whole subcultures. Um, and so we were on board immediately after I used to um, back where they were like a skeleton crew. We used to go down, that's what we down one day a week, and I'd go down one day a week and we would serve the kids, and that's what we would teach them to cook and read stories. And I would go and read stories to them with these young kids, terrible reader. But, um, but uh, we would have fun with the kids, just helping them um, keep going. But, um, but honestly, they only had the same vision Thank you. 
so little understanding of, of who you are that you don't even know if you're going to be Like, that, that, you, that you genuinely feel that disconnected from yourself. That you literally have no identity uh, or real understanding. Because um, I've always just been angered by it, by the discussion. It felt like they were just pushing my buttons and, and trying to, um, to challenge everything that could be challenged. I never thought about how it must feel to live in a world where you have no clue who you are or how you're really supposed to engage in the world or act in the world. When you have so little identity that you don't know how you fit in the culture and you feel disconnected. Like that's things that we take for granted at my age. Those things that just come without thinking of. What if those were untethered and you did not know who you were supposed to be and who you were and, and, and what must that feel like feel that disconnected from yourself. And, uh, uh, and no, I know, I don't know how I'm supposed to dress, what I'm supposed to be. I mean, lost is the word. You know, literally uh, lost with no identity of the most basic things that we take for granted. There's a generation of people um, who, who we've invested time and money into trying to tell them who Jesus is. I think we might have to invest some time in talking about what it might look like to tell them who they are, to, to help them find who they are, because right now they don't have a clue. They are completely lost. Since this article, I've been seeing this this uh, kind of argument as a deep cry for help. Because these people say, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to be. I, I'm, I'm, I'm completely lost and disconnected. It's, it's like they're waving a huge flag screaming, we have no idea who we are or how we're supposed to act. And, uh, uh, and if ever there was a generation that was begging to know who they are in the story of God, it's this one. And if the stats are right, we're not doing a good job. Um, Barna, the research group, has uh, just published some information on Gen Z. They are the least religious generation in history, um, with far more members of this generation declaring outright atheism than has ever existed in any country ever. Um, the millennials still kind of call themselves agnostic. You know, they at least recognize there might be something out there. Gen Z is coming out in mass numbers just uh, as, as full-blown atheists. Um, comfortable with the idea that there's nothing. That we have no idea there's nothing. And, and that's a painful place to live. Um, they're, they're not just trying to annoy us. They are hurting. And, and they have no idea um, what there is. And any wonder they don't know who they are. They're the first generation ever polled they when asked religious questions, actually wrote in Harry Potter as their real religious belief system. Like, uh, so that's fun to think about. Um, but to be honest, um, I'm not really fully ready to teach on identity. It's something that I'm now like diving into. Like, what does it mean, and, and, how, and where do we are we supposed to find our identity, and how do we anchor that and teach that, especially as kids. But it is now fully on my radar. And so it may be something we dive into, kind of do a deep dive next year um, into what it means uh, to have identity and identity in Christ, uh, especially how this, this world-changing gospel is supposed to shape our identity and how we communicate that um, to this next generation. But at the very least, um, I feel like we absolutely have to, more than ever, have to, have to, have to continue to do everything we can to invest in and include our kids in everything we do here at Open Table Community Church. Um, which brings up an interesting point that I think we do need to talk about. Uh, because I talk all the time about how much we love having our kids um, in here with us, uh, even when they're rowdy. Um, and try to have a tendency to give this little speech um, whenever our kids have been in. We've had an especially rough morning and our kids are really cranked up. And I can see their parents, like with that panic, please don't judge me, look. And, uh, and, um, and everyone else is like uh, just tense. And feeling distracted and uncomfortable. Um, I like to talk about it and remind everyone, yes, we know this is a rough morning, but we love our kids being here, and, uh, and this is going to happen. But here's the deal. Um, I don't ever want like, everybody to think that when I say that, I'm saying that by loving our kids, you know, we want the distraction and the, and the chaos um, uh, that, that comes with having them around. That, that's not the case. And I don't think any parent ever, like, when their kid is being disrupted in the church, like, this is awesome. I love it. It's like, no. Like, of course the parent wants their kid um, uh, 
to be a you know a passionate um, you know Jesus follower who comes and engages in uh, and, and rightly ordered worship. We want them to learn a deep respect for the presence of God and the community of faith, and learn what it means to worship corporately and be thinking about other people and how they might serve the church by how they act in church and. Uh, and create a space where other people can worship. Of course, that's our goal. That is always our goal. But guess what? Kids do not come with that pre-wired in them. They, they just don't. Nothing convinces me of original sin more than having 16 kids. Um, they come out committed little sinners. I mean, they're just pure evil. And I know they're adorable and they're squishy. And literally, there's no computer. I'm a sucker for a baby. I love babies, but please don't think that I have any misconceptions. That adorable little ball of stubbiness is a wicked little thing. It's just evil as they come. Uh, have you ever noticed you don't have to teach your baby to scream when they don't get their way? That just comes free wild. You don't have to teach that. Um, you don't have to teach them to be selfish and think of themselves first. That comes free wild. You don't have to teach them to be stingy with their things. Um, that comes on it. You don't have to teach them to sneak around into things they're not supposed to do. Um, they just manage to do that all on their own. Um, you don't have to teach them to, uh, to lie. Somehow they just learn. That just comes. You know, the first time you're like, what are you like, how did you learn that? I never, where did you get that from? You don't have to ignore, teach them to ignore the rules. You do have to teach them the virtues. That's the irony. You have to teach them to share and be honest and obey. None of those come pre-wired. Those have to be put in there. Uh, they were wired for sin. Um, your kids are going to come here in the church, uh, and, uh, and and they're, they're going to come in as, as little sinners. Uh, actually, though, if I'm honest, they do bring in some things that I wish you guys um, could catch sometimes. They come in and enjoy each other. You ever notice that? They just love being together and having fun together. It'd be awesome if we could pick up on just a little bit of that. Um, they're pretty authentic. Uh, when, when when they're excited to be here, you know it. And when they're not, you know it. You guys are way better at thinking like you're interested when you're really thinking about what you're going to fix for lunch. Like I, you know, I can see it every now and then. <laughs> Speaking of which, I have an apology to make. <laughs> this is not in my script. Um, I had to go to a class for my contractor's license. I have to do continuing every year, and I have to go to a class. And I made a classic, tragic mistake in my class this, this week. And that was, it's an eight-hour class with eight hours of lecture that you have to sit through. And normally, um, normally I do church work or something, because it's, but they outlawed laptops because it distracts the teachers. And now I'm sitting there like, what am I going to do for eight hours? And I made the mistake of, Three minutes into this lecture, he makes a good point, and I, lo- I look at his eyes and I nod, and, and my day was over. Because he was like, oh, there's an encouraging guy. I'll look at him all day. So for those of you that I make eye contact when I'm preaching, I never realized how much pressure that puts on you, and I am so excited for that. I have no idea how much pressure to sit there like he keeps looking at me, and I have to nod. But, you know, I had to experience that for eight hours on Thursday, or on Friday. Okay, where the heck was I? I don't know. Uh, but our kids, our kids are authentic. When they're not paying attention, I know they're not paying attention. When you guys are paying attention, you still have that auto nod that you can turn on. That just yeah, just nod and you'll think you're into it. Uh, but when it comes to thinking about everyone else in the room, and how can I make this an environment where everybody can worship and engage? They're not going to come pre-wired for that. Um, they do not have that. We have to, to teach them that. We have to help them with that. Which means a couple things that we all want to touch on. First and foremost, you're a role model. When you choose not to sing, little eyes are watching that. When you choose to have a, a grumpy face and, to, and to, to look like you don't enjoy being here, someone little is watching that. Sean, I'm looking at you now. I don't let me throw it in I don't let me Maybe I might as well make it public. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you come to church and, and you uh, ignore what's happening, and there's someone watching you. And, and we don't come to church um, just to consume. We come to share this space with others and serve others and, 
and mostly to teach and train and be an example to our children of what a worshiper looks like. And the first thing I want to point out is we're an example to that. When we come in, we are helping to shape how these children are going to engage the people of God and the worship of God. And that's an important thing to remember. We have a responsibility to first model what it means to be a Christ follower. What's up, buddy? Because our kids are watching us. So when I tell the joke, laugh, because they know them. And second, it is okay to correct your children there. Uh, that's the people can mention that sometimes when I get up and give my speech, you know, they're, they're like afraid that if they, if they correct their child, I'm going to be upset with them. That's not the case. Um, please be gentle, like, so that then your kids don't hate coming here and, and uh, turn them off of the, the people of God because we're too rough on them. But, um, uh, but when I say that I, I love kids and I love the noise, I'm not saying you can't uh, be active in the, their development as a worshiper in church. We, we support you. As you want to train your children and, and, uh, and, and how to think about others in this space and, and in whatever way you feel convicted. We want to serve you to that end. Um, and so our heart is for our kids to grow into selfless, getting disciples who come to church ready to, to think about others um, and, and how they can help make the space uh, suitable for others to worship well. But here's the deal. On the road to that goal, they're going to get it wrong. Um, and it's our job as a church to give them grace um, when they fail um, without judgment, even as we also continue to hold that goal of seeing them grow and mature. And then, that makes sense? And of course, we adults, we're also going to get it wrong at times, and we'll do better at other times. But along this roller coaster ride, I think um, it's important to, to hold up as an example people like Dowdy O'Kayla, people who got it. People who, who looked at this broken world and understood it, it's about the kids. And we have to put our focus on the kids. The world is falling apart. And if we don't uh, invest in the kids, we lose it. Um, and there's only really one way to make that difference, and that's, that's in children. So how do we respond to this? Um, as a father of 16 kids and a pastor, children's pastor for nine years and a leader in Children's and youth ministries for much longer than that. Daddy Okello obviously speaks to me. He obviously um, is one of my patron saints. Um, someone who is completely and entirely not only caught up in the love of Jesus um, to where Jesus just gripped his life, this Prince of Peace who wants to bring peace to the world and end all the anger and grumpiness and bitterness, but also someone. Um, who sees the vulnerability of the next generation and, uh, and desires to pour out into that generation um, the gospel and what it might mean to live um, with Jesus at the center of your life in this chaotic world. I, I get that, and I love Daddy O'Kalo. He's one of my favorite people. I'm humber, humbled and inspired by this African saint. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, this month uh, of looking at Christ followers um, who kind of set amazing examples for us to follow, this cloud of witnesses, as the writer of Hebrews calls it, isn't just about honoring four people. It's not just about picking four people that kind of speak to me. And, um, so what I'd love to do, what I'd love for all of us to do as we respond to this series, um, is take this month and think about your story and the people who have spoken into your story. Who are your saints? Maybe it's, your, maybe it's a grandparent, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a youth pastor, children's pastor, maybe it's your first mentor. Who spoke into your life and shaped your story? Who, who needs to be venerated in, in your little world of sainthood for this month? The way I would love... Um, to respond to this message and really this entire month is to recognize the shoulders that you stand on. And, uh, and please, starting this week, reflect on your story and, and identify the role models in your faith journey who have shaped you and, and helped you become who you are and brought you to this place this morning. Bring up their name and honor them. Tell their story to somebody around you um, 
And I, I personally think that kind of the Catholic Church goes a little far with the whole saint veneration. But uh, if they didn't, I would know nothing about Daddy Okeba. And so I, I love that they continue to tell those stories and, uh, and share the saints of the past. Um, and so, uh, so please, over the course of this month, think about the people who have had in your life and, and uh, in a small way venerate them. Tell their story to somebody. Bring their name up and recognize that, that you didn't get here on your own. Somebody shaped you and helped you and spoke into your life. And, uh, and it's right, um, especially this month, as we kind of set this month aside to honor other people, it's right to tell their stories. Um, how many of you have ever heard of Dowdy O'Kayla? How do you really? That's awesome. Yeah, most of us have, you know, most of us have not. And I love that we just told his story and that this amazing, you know, kid from Africa got honored. Um, and so how many people in your story need that? Need someone else to hear their story? Need, need someone else to be, uh, um, to recognize how amazing they were? So maybe, maybe don't pray to them. That gets a little weird in my book. Um, but I love it if you tell their story and make sure that the future generations get to benefit from it. Amen? Thank you.